Okay, well, I'll say a few words first about the book, and then I think Jane is going to put questions to me. This is a most unusual book. I've written a lot of books professionally because I'm a professional historian, but I've never written a book like this before, and I hope never to have to write a book like this again. It was one that got under my skin that I was completely obsessed about during the time that I was researching it. I'll tell you very briefly um, what I think is very odd about the mixture in this book. Uh, first of all, it is a professional history. I am a professional historian, so I have done the research. I have tried as best I can to explore every avenue, every archive, every oral history interview that was relevant in order to try and reconstruct the slow but actually speeding up process of humiliation, expropriation, stigmatization, ghettoization, and eventually deportation and extermination of the Jews of Benjin, this small town in eastern Upper Silesia. So in one sense, I've used all the tools of the historical trade to try and understand that. And I wouldn't have written the book if I hadn't thought there was something historical of significance to work out here in terms of the role of civilian administrators. It focuses particularly on the guy who is the so-called Landrat, that's like the chief executive officer of a whole county with three towns in it and 65 rural communities. And I, I really thought this was worth doing. But the reason it's an unusual book, certainly for me, is that I wrote it because of a very specific personal reason. I was extremely emotionally worked up about it and, as I say, obsessed with it. And when I came to writing it, um, having decided there was a historical object of interest in the book, I came to the view that it was not possible to write it as a standard objective history book, that I would have to explicitly write myself into it beyond the preface, not just in the preface acknowledge my personal interest, as it were, or my conflict of interest, because I have many conflicts of interest, but actually to, to make this explicit throughout the text, and to ruminate not only on what it was I was finding out about the history, but also to ruminate on the issues to do with memory and repression and silence and rewriting of the past and retelling of the past. This got worse and worse in the writing of the book, actually, because the son of the Landrat was constantly in contact with me and emailing me and talking to me. And once I'd sent him the whole manuscript, then he started debating with me about every point. So the footnotes actually threatened to become completely carbuncled with my debate with his son, whose view of his father was very different from my view of his father. So let me, without too much, taking up too much time, tell you very, very briefly what I think the issues are and why I came to write it. Um, why I came to write it, I was about to teach a seminar just up the road from here in UCL at 11 o'clock on a Wednesday morning, as I frequently do in the terms when I teach from 11 to 1 on a Wednesday morning. And at 10.30, I was in the middle of working on this other book, um, Dissonant Lives. At 10.30 that morning, I thought, well, I'll just glance at some old letters that of my mother's. My mother had died. Um, she had a little memorial booklet that had been made for her when, or made for everyone in the family and friends, when her very best friend died. The son made a memorial booklet about his mother's uh, life and letters throughout her life. And one of the extracts in these letters, I just looked at again at 10.30 that Wednesday morning, and it said it was this woman, Alexandra was her name, writing to her own mother in Berlin in the war years. And it said, today 15,000 Jews were deported. It was so awful that I would have liked to leave the place too. And I just thought for a moment, I thought, where would she have been that 15,000 Jews were deported? 
in one day. This couldn't be. Um, so I just Googled the name where she'd written the letter from, the name of the town, Bensburg, and I thought, I know Germany well, and I know Heidelberg, and Freiburg, and you know, Brandenburg, and there are lots of burgs and bergs in Germany, but I've never heard of Bensburg. Where is this? I Googled it, and up on my computer screen came Bensburg, the Germanized version of the Polish town of Benjin, and on the Google page it came up with Landkart Udo Klauser. And I felt like I'd been punched in the stomach. I felt literally, physically sick at this, because Udo Klauser was the name of my godmother's husband. He was the man to whom my mother's best school friend was married. My mother's best school friend, who was my godmother, her husband was Udo Klauser. And I thought, this cannot be. This just simply cannot be. Because my mother was a refugee from Nazi Germany. She'd left Nazi Germany in the 1930s. And she'd made friends again with this woman, Alexandra, her best school friend after the war. And we had known the Klausers really well. We'd been on holiday with them. We'd stayed in their house. I'd sat next to Udo Klauser for breakfast, for dinner. And I just thought, this man cannot have been a Nazi. He cannot have been. My mother thought her friend was in the resistance. So this was the initial shock, which just made me think, I've got to get to the bottom of this. What does the Landrat actually do? And I thought that Wednesday morning, well, okay, I'm teaching till one, go to the library in the afternoon, bound to find some literature on it, solve it by bedtime. Uh, and then it took me several years. Um, so this was how it started. I just realized there wasn't actually a significant literature on what it means to be a Nazi Landkart. And more specifically for me, I had to find out what this man in particular did. So that's how it started. Very, very briefly, why I think I had to write a book about it. Um, two reasons, the bad reason, or maybe it's a good reason, I don't know, but one reason is I couldn't figure it out without collating the material. It was so complex, there was so much material, I simply had to put it together for myself, and that meant, being who I am, writing it. I, you know, I couldn't grasp it all without laying it out chronologically, seeing what bit of evidence fitted where, what did it amount to. So I had to write it for myself, and my first draft, I have to say, was extraordinarily angry. I was really, really angry, so it's full of emotion. And then the more I thought about it, the more I thought, actually, this makes some serious historical arguments that are not available in the literature, um, or not widely available in the ancient language literature. Certainly, there's a lot more that's been coming out in German on this level of civilian administration, but it's not really prevalent in much of the English language literature. Uh, one argument is that, actually, when we're looking for the causes of the Holocaust, or when we're looking for explanations as to how it was possible that six million people were murdered. Um, we've been focusing so much on issues to do with uh, anti-Semitic ideology and brutalization and willingness to pull the trigger. I, I won't go into the debates, but there are many that I'm sure you're all aware of. And if something struck me with this man, it's not motives. He had no motives. He was just mobilized. So the importance of conformity of being mobilized to do his duty, to simply pass on and carry out the orders that he got from on high. And secondly, it's not just pulling the trigger. If these civilian administrators had not laid the groundwork in terms of ghettoization, the Jews would not have been so easily um, available for being rounded up, deported, and murdered. If they had still been eating decently, live, living a proper life, having their livelihoods, 
um, able to move around, it would have been much, much harder to get them together. I'm not saying it would have been impossible, but I think the ease of the deportation in some areas, not all, but certainly in this area, um, can only in part be explained, uh, but it can in part be explained through the way the civilian administration laid the groundwork. And what is important there is that the civilian administration pretended they knew nothing about it. They knew nothing about Auschwitz, only 25 miles down the railway tracks. Um, they certainly didn't want mass murder to be the outcome, and they didn't want to be held responsible for that after the war. Um, so they could develop excuses, ways of talking about it, that they could live with themselves afterwards. But they were a key element in the development of mass murder. And so it really struck me, in looking at all this, that it tells us an awful lot about the simple machinery of how the Holocaust was possible, and also the ways in which so many decent civil service civilian administrators after the war were able to get away with it with a relatively untroubled conscience. This man kept saying, I did not want to become innocently guilty, and he never felt he was guilty of anything. He never seemed to show any remorse. So it seemed to me to tell a lot about the post-war period as well. And in the microcosm of the relationship between my mother and her former best school friend, my godmother, and their truce, their willingness not to talk about the past, never to really mention the Nazi period, not to discuss politics, to have a superficial social relationship. That seemed to me too to tell me an awful lot about post-war West Germans and, and how they were able to live with this past. So that's why I ended up thinking I'm going to have to write this as a book that other people can read and not just as an angry um, tract to myself. And then I tried to iron out all the emotion, get rid of it, and bits of it bubbled through here and there. And you can make of it what you will. Jane. Thanks very much. I mean, I think that gives um, a really interesting account of, of how this book came to be written and what its major um, themes are. And I think. Um, I mean, I read it with enormous interest, and it's certainly clear that there's a sort of double, there's a dialogue going on between you and the material, and I want to come back to that um, in a moment and reflect a bit later on about the uh, question of how one writes as a historian and as something else. But I think I want to pick up on the last point that you made, which is this word decency, in German, anständig. Um, I want to sort of ask you a bit more about that, partly from the perspective that I have as someone who worked on the history of the civil service, of this um, group of professional civil servants that the Landrat um, was a part of. And I think you should, we should know that this young man, he was a young man, he just made, really got his first appointment um, in the 1930s. He, he trained after 1933. He really made his career choice after 1933. And um, he decided to go into um, the civil service at a point at which I think that he and his mentor, a man called Fritz Dietloff von der, Schulen, von der Schulenberg, were um, expecting quite a lot of the Nazi regime. They were expecting that the civil service would have an imp enormously important role, that the, that the civil service and people like Clauser in particular, these local administrators who had a lot of local independence, so to speak, a lot of local autonomy, um, that they would become in some ways the kind of pioneers of a new form of really organized administrative rationality of efficiency, solving the problems that Germany um, had been developing from their point of view since the catastrophic defeat of 1918. They saw a really powerful role for themselves in, in this um, new state because they thought away with parliaments, away with the sort of problems of democracy, away with petty interest groups. We, the civil service, represent 
all that is kind of um, uh, uh, good and nationalist and solidaristic about um, Germany and German, the German people. And I think Clauser is a representative of that. And this term, um, as time went on and quite quickly, um, certainly Clauser's mentor, Schulenberg, realized that this was not happening, actually, and that, what, that their visions for the civil service were being um, hugely, massively undermined and defeated by the, the style of Nazi government as well as the objectives of Nazi government. And style of government, I think, was very important because these people thought that they could, in some ways, um, limit objectives by virtue of style, so to speak, that if you were a decent administrator, you were doing your job properly to resist the... Um, the Nazis. And I, I mean, I have a quotation here from one of the major um, uh, uh, German resistors or leaders of this kind of resistance, a man called Karl Gerdeler, um, who in his plan, these were the people who were involved with the plot to kill Hitler in July 1944, um, and in, in his planned speech, to, which would have been broadcast had that plot been successful, um, uh, he was going to say that everybody would be welcome, people, they wanted to restore uh, the real Germany to itself. Um, and that people of good conscience would have nothing to fear from a, from a, from a, a, a non-Hitler regime. So in 1944, he writes, it's not a question of whether you're a member of the, um, of the party or just a member of the German people. Um, it's not a, member, not a question of whether you belong to the SS, the SA, or any other organization. It is simply a matter of the question, decent or not decent, anständig oder unanständig. And I would like to, I'd like just to say one more thing before asking you to say a bit more about it. After the end of the war in 1945, and right on through the early years of, of the West German Republic, this was again the refrain, that these people were the decent Germans, that they had behaved decently. You can find this from, again, from the very, very beginning, from rep representations to the Allied occupation about how the administration of Germany should be organized that decent civil servants, and they were, the majority of them had done their work decently, they had tried to work and so on and so forth. That concept of decency was not just his view, um, it was um, the, the, the way in which um, the civil service created an image of itself which then sustained its image of what it had done after 1945, sustained its reintegration into, um, into West German history. Um, and, you know, because you talk, write about it in the book, that the term decency is also one that was used by Himmler in rather different circumstances, which I'm sure you can tell us about. And I'm, I'm interested, actually, in, in the, these competing decencies, the, the civil service decency, Himmler's decency, the sort of decency that in some ways is attached to recent work on, um, the, on Nazi morality by people like Claudia Kuntz or Raphael Gross or, or Richard Weichart, that there's a kind of... There's, there's a, a lot of different um, um, values going on here, and I'd just like to hear a bit more about how you think um, Clauser understood decency and, um, and what you think the role of that, in some ways, was in um, uh, uh, helping him, in some ways, simply not to face what he had done. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a really important question and a really important set of questions there. Um, the, the issue with Clauser is that he clearly had an inner conflict. His wife talks a lot in her letters. I've, I've got his wife's letters to her own mother in Berlin throughout the war, and she was writing to her mother every two to three days. So it's an extraordinary record of how a young woman is living in this eastern Silesian province of the Third Reich. Um, and she talks a lot about her husband's nerves. He had basically a nervous breakdown in the summer of 1942 uh, between the first 
big deportations of May 1942 and the next massive deportation of August 1942. He pretty much seems to have had a nervous breakdown. He went off on to a clinic and, and came back, as she put it, suntanned, well-fed, but his nerves were worse than ever, ever, and so on. So he clearly knew that what he thought he had gone out to do in terms of colonizing the East and setting up efficient Nazi administration and Germanizing and all the rest of it was um, turning into something quite different with which he was not happy. And despite his own sense of decency, he realized there was a difference there. He also always made the distinction between himself and the real Nazis. Um, there was always a sense that the others were the real Nazis, the rabble, the scum, the, the lower classes, the violent ones. They were the real Nazis, the fanatical Nazis. And he was only in it um, in order to prevent the real Nazis getting the upper hand. Um, and yet he joined the Nazi party in February 1933 and had rushed to join the Nazi party because a friend had given him a tip-off that membership might be closed soon if he didn't get his act together quickly and hurry up. And I think this is very typical of the NSDAP, in fact, that it was, it did have this broad spectrum of people, including the civil servants who thought they were decent and were going to make a better Germany. And he talks in his memoirs quite openly about how in the early years he thought return to full employment, Versailles Treaty, make Germany great again doing a good job. Um, I think what's interesting is um, something I call the community of empathy. Uh, and I haven't written about this yet, I'm working on it at the moment, so it's very much in my mind, but I haven't worked it out on paper at great length yet. Um, it's a question of with whom do you feel empathy and to whom do you owe some kind of moral obligation to look after them. And I think the contrast between Klauser and Himmler, if I can, if this isn't too absurd a contrast, but just to make this comparison, um, what you get with Klauser is the community of empathy is the Germans and he really doesn't care what the living conditions for Jews are like once they're in the ghetto, once they're crowded in poorer houses, once they're on reduced rations, it doesn't matter. Uh, it doesn't matter if they're dying of starvation and disease and so on. What matters is that the Germans are being protected from disease and so on. And so for him, there's a community of empathy which allows him not to see what the consequences of his policies are on those who are the victims of his policies. Himmler. We have a very, in his posing speeches of 1943, which I'm sure many of you are familiar with, um, we have a very, very interesting appeal because he's sort of saying to the assembled audience, what of the women and children, I hear you cry. Um, and what he is saying is overcome your inbuilt moral scruples about not murdering women and children. Okay to murder men, but not women and children. You know, there's a sort of, there's a sense of, a German morality there. And he's doing that by appealing to their sense of a long-term community of empathy in the future, the future of the German people. We cannot allow these children to grow up because they might take revenge. And so he's redefining the community of empathy from those who are human beings who are vulnerable, women and children who you might normally protect, to the community of empathy being the German folk persisting through time and not wishing to have them exposed to the dangers. And so I think this, this decency issue has to be related to the, the area within which a moral code is valid. And that can be expanded or contracted differently according to how you see it. Yes, and I think it, it probably is the case then that um, it's only when these codes are brought up against each other and they're literally posed against each other that the possibility of choice 
emerges. I mean, because of course the other thing about about Himmler is that one of the things he says in these speeches is, um, you know, he says at one point, you know, you, a lot of you will know what it's like when you see 500 or 1,000 corpses, blah, 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 lying together in a ditch or whatever. And, and he goes on to say, to have done these things, which were a necessary task, but to have remained decent, this is what makes us Germans strong. And for him, it isn't, it, his concept of, of decency, which is very deep-seated in, in his whole upbringing, I think, um, is um, uh, uh, not something that, um, it, it's something that, that Germans bring to this difficult task of taking on the um, um, extermination of, of Europe's Jews, which is a task they're doing, so to speak, for their humanity. And this, I think, is something that um, other historians have written about. Um, I think it's also perhaps related to something else which, it, which appears in this book, but which you develop also at length in the book you were writing when you um, began to think about this, which is the strategy of contrasting um, what you call inner belief with outer behavior. Um, and I've got, you know, that's, maybe you would, might want to say something about that too, because I think it's what an important strategy in, in your um, analysis here. But it's also um, raises for me a, a sort of different kind of angle of the question of community of empathy, um, which is the problem of, of um, becoming um, of what we call apologetics for the Nazi regime. In other words, um, uh, you know, do you find out too much about someone so you begin to get too far under his skin? I mean, I don't think you do in this, but in some ways you do say, you know, you're giving him not exactly the benefit of the doubt, but you're, you're working away at him um, because you've found out so much about him and because of the personal connection. Um, so that's one thing, that you get too identified with the, with the person you're working on in such detail. Um, or do you also get so slightly different is whether you get so familiar with the sort of everyday con sort of situation and constraints of action and choice that you, get, you understand too well how easy it is not to face the choices that we retrospectively say, you should have done this, you should have thought that, you should have, you know... Um, you, you should have thought about what you're doing. Here was a point at which you could have um, protested. Some people did, not many, not many did, but um, um, but some did. And I think it goes into a question which is going right back also to the point that you made at the very beginning, that you wanted to see how, how the administrative side of keeping everything going in some respects, while you know, if your job was to was to sort of like to to, to keep a, a Jewish population simply under control and make sure that the right amount, not too much, but some food got in, to make sure that they were in the right places at the right times, that the streets were barred and so on and so forth. Um, that um, that's something which ties in, I think, with what quite a lot of historians are interested in. Um, what a colleague of ours called Alf Lutke some years ago called um, political rule as social practice. Herrschaft als soziale Praxis, and it's sort of the everydayness of administration. So I guess that's two sets of questions. Um, inner belief and outer behavior and, and the implications of that for you trying to write about Clauser. And then this question of, of being so, getting really involved with the very daily activity of how rule is maintained, you know, how sovereignty, how power is maintained, that, that to step back from that and look again at the big picture becomes quite hard. Mm. I, th I think the inner belief out of behaviour one is, is really, really important. As you probably know, so many Germans afterwards said, we were always against it. And there was the joke that after 1945, it turned out Hitler had been the only Nazi in Germany. <laughs> um, this was a very prevalent joke. Um, in the case of um, 
this particular case, I never felt I got inside, in part because my own emotions were much more tangled up with this story than with anyone that I wrote about in Dissonant Lives, where I was trying to develop that as a strategy of analysis. Um, because here, I was so angry with the man, and some of what I wrote was, when I first wrote it, was really just trying to show him posthumously, because he's dead, um, simply what were the consequences of his behaviour, because I was so angry about it. And then it was the son who kept saying to me, but you aren't interpreting this rightly, and you aren't interpreting that rightly, and he always wanted to get away. And, and then I started looking at him thinking, well, he could see it that way, that's how the son sees it, but I see it a different way. And so you can't quite get inside his mind, even despite his wife's letters, even despite his son talking very openly mm -hmm. and extensively, um, you can't quite get inside his mind. I think he suffered nerves for a long time before the deportations. You know, I go back through the letters and I think some of it was he was just worried he wouldn't... He was a young man, he was only 29 when he was appointed Landkraut and he was only provisionally appointed, was waiting to be confirmed in his post after a couple of years and was nervous that he wouldn't be confirmed to the permanent position, that he wouldn't get tenure, as it were. Um, because he was a Catholic, and so some of his nerves might have been careerist nerves. You know, I, I simply couldn't get to the bottom of his nerves, and I'm being charitable, thinking it's when he saw what he was getting deeper and deeper into, but one could see it differently, that he actually was just a careerist who didn't think this was quite the career he wanted, and was more, you know, there are many ways of interpreting this. In terms of um, giving his side of the story too much credence, I certainly lent over backwards to do that because my first reading of it was one of such anger that I was, um, the son still thinks I have a prosecutorial tone in the book that I'm trying to really find him guilty of far more than he was guilty of. Other readers have told me, no, I lean over backwards and I'm far too fair to a former Nazi, giving him far more rope than he deserves. And I was really trying in every story that I tried to understand, and many of them are very difficult. He tells, in his memoirs, he tells these little stories. He tried to save a Jew. He never knew anything about the gas chambers at Auschwitz. You know, uh, he only heard about this really in 1944 through meeting somebody on a train. So the train story, which we get in umpteen autobiographies, and the try to save a Jew story, which we get in umpteen autobiographies, he too has these little stories. And my first reaction on reading them was the cynical reaction. Um, you know, he's casting himself in a good light. It's like so many West German stories, different from East German stories, which tend to say, yeah, I was taken in by it all, but then I was converted when I was in a Soviet prison of war camp. Different kind of pattern of storytelling. So my first reaction was cynical, and then I tried to listen hard to what the son was saying, because he knew, respected, loved his father, and was really almost, you'll see the son, in fact, in the short film that we're going to show, because there are bits of interviews with him, and he'll tell you some of these stories there. Um, so I tried to tell both sides, but I never felt I actually got inside the head of this man because I felt such a strong dislike for him. I actually couldn't bear reading his memoirs that I was having to juxtapose with what I'd found in the archival and other evidence. And I actually felt physically quite sick some of the time when I was looking at his memoirs. It just really revolted. So I don't think in the case of this man there was that danger that you mm. pointed to. And I don't think there was the danger of the everyday, you know, power as social practice kind of 
um, lose seeing the wood for the trees because actually what struck me more and more was the significance of the wood, the significance of you've got to understand the tiny details, the stages of ghettoisation, the creeping into it bit by bit. First get the Jews out of the houses the Germans want, then get Jews into areas where Germans don't have to see Jews and Jews don't have, and then concentrate them and incarcerate them so that they can't escape. And that bit by bit progression, when I suddenly realised there were really three very distinct stages of ghettoization and they were for different purposes at different times and that it wasn't necessarily predictable at each stage what the next one would be then I suddenly thought no I, actually I can see a pattern here which is more than the day-to-day -day practice that one can easily get lost in as you point to it that it is a roller coaster that is going very radically through different steps uh, to an ultimate end that we know about um, so I, I didn't feel either of those were quite dangerous in this particular book. It might no. be in other contexts, but not not on this. Yeah. I was working on this. I mean, I think um, we probably have time for one or two more um, observations, comments, and questions before we see the film. I do think it's important that he's in a very peculiar territory. I mean, if you read the book, you'll see it's quite difficult to describe what this territory is. Um, and even the maps in the book don't make it easy to see that this was a territory in which actually there was quite a lot of population exchange going on. Um, uh, and but in, and, the, and the, while he's working, something like 50,000 Germans are piling up, waiting to be resettled in this area. So there are lots of camps around with people in various states of deportation and mobility and so on. And it's a you know, trying to f figure out what your piece, where you are in this whole piece is, 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 um, is quite difficult in some ways. And for me, I mean, this always did for the work that I did many years ago, raises for me the, the problems of, of the division of labor in a highly, highly complex society, which we still live with. I mean, the division of labor is such that in the end, no one person is responsible. It's, you know, it's a mosaic of responsibility. And that's something which, you know, I'm sure people will know from their, from their own working lives. But um, let me go back to, as I said I would, to something you said at the beginning. And um, maybe, um, you know, obviously this is a book that aims to tell us um, more than we used to know about a particular piece of history, a particular way of looking at it and so on. You know, what a particular person did in the Nazi area, what he knew of criminal acts and, and how he handled his history post-war, which I find enraging because he's typical of so many. But anyway, but does it also tell us something about um, the historian's craft, how we work? I mean, you said a bit about that, but what are the boundaries between being a professional historian and being a non and doing non-academic history? I mean, you, it, it struck me very forcibly that, that, that your, what, what professionalized this project for you was to make as much archival inroads as you could to find the documents. And it is you know, what we all do, what we tell our students to do. But I just wondered about, you know, that this produces in some senses the, a, a different kind of history writing. Mm -hmm. Certainly for you, I don't know whether you had any models, for example, you had in mind anyone else who'd had to face this kind of, you know, sense of dual engagement with it, or whether you felt you were um, forging a new way of doing it. Could, mm -hmm. Maybe you could say something about that. Certainly it would interest me. Yeah, I certainly felt I was breaking some of the historical rules. Um, there's a chapter in the book on Auschwitz. It's, I think, the penultimate chapter. And I knew what I wanted to say in that. And when I was getting towards the end of the chapter, I thought if I were in my professional role, I would conclude it with a paragraph that concludes it, you know, that sums up the arguments and pulls it together as one does with, you know, you've written stuff, you know what you do in the conclusion. And actually, I was so angry at that point that I thought after I've had all these 
um, post-war defence statements of former Nazis, the head of the gendarmerie, who I know to have been responsible in assisting in roundups for the deportations, saying after the war to the Ludwigsburg authorities investigating him, I never knew anything about it. I was away when the deportations occurred. When I came back, I just saw bloodstains leading to the railway station. I was shown this, and I said, oh my goodness, what happened here? Um, and they said, why were you away? And he said, well, my son got married. What year did your son get married in? Um, oh, he got married in either 1942, when there was one major deportation, or 1943, when the whole ghetto was cleared and everybody was deported and killed immediately on arrival in Auschwitz. Well, did your son get married in 1942? I can't remember. It was either 1942 or 43. And the Ludwigsburg authorities did not say, well, if your son got married in one of the years, where were you in the other year? They did not pursue. Anyway, I'd been writing about these little statements and, and just feeling really... Um, you know, feeling involved in it, let me put it that way. And when I got to the end of that chapter, I thought, can I actually end this in any other way? And I just thought, damn it, I'm just gonna juxtapose their statements with the first testimony, post-war testimony from the Wiener Library, given in May 1945 by a man called Mordecai Lichtenstein, who had survived Auschwitz, and he says, I'm very grateful to this country, he's in London, he says, I'm very grateful to this country for all it's given me, but having lost my wife, my brother-in-law, you know, names various relatives where he'd lost them on the death marches in Auschwitz, whether a man of my experience can ever be happy again, that I severely doubt. And at that point, you know, I, I just thought, I'm not going to, I'm, I'm not going to pretend this is, at this point, what one does in academic history. I'm just juxtaposing that to remind you know, posthumously Udo Klauser, posthumously other members of the family, that all these statements from all these former Nazis who never knew anything about it, that's what that had led to, and that he was having to lead a life after the war, doubting whether he could ever be happy again. And these characters were evading denazification and evading being brought to justice. And, and you know, I just felt so sick to the stomach. I thought, I can't write normal history here. So that, that's one way. And I certainly wouldn't normally write about my feelings in the way that I did in the conclusion, but I just felt I've got to say it how I'm feeling it. And yet I was in a twist. I was in an absolute conflict of interest because I didn't want to upset the family. I, I didn't want the six <coughs> living children of this man to have to be confronted with a different picture of their father, uh, you know, so late in their lives. They're all in their 60s and 70s. And so I felt extremely bad about that. Um, and still do. You know, I still wonder, was this the right thing to do? It, it, on the other hand, if I don't write it, I'm colluding in their own cover-up. You know, so it, the conflicts of interest, I thought, I've got to write about this. And it's not something you do when, when you kind of, you're writing about 17th century Countess who you've never met and really yeah. don't care about. <laughs> yeah. Yes, I think those, those, as you say, are the things you put in the preface, and I think that the, um, you know, that what characterises this book is that ongoing thread. <laughs> but I think we should um, stop this because we would like to, so Mary would like to yeah. say a bit perhaps about the movie. And I just want to say something very briefly about the film before you see it. This is not Schindler's List. This is not Huntsman's Shower. Um, this is just some selected excerpts from some of the oral history interviews that we did while we were there. And I had an interpreter for the Polish. I tried to learn Polish and got just about enough for getting into the archives and then reading the documents in German. But I had a Polish interpreter doing the oral history interviews with me. 
and we filmed them and I just thought some of them put together give people a sense of where this is, what the people are like, what's going on and I think some of the extracts that I've got in here are actually very interesting in terms of post-war memory issues. So do not expect a kind of Luntzmann Spielberg thing here but it's 20 minutes that might be useful and helpful to you. Before the Nazi invasion of Poland in September 1939, the town was home to around 25,000 Jews, comprising roughly half the population. A flourishing industrial town, Benjamin was also a centre of culture, education and religion. Under Nazi occupation, all this was to change. No, to myśmy do tych szkieletów domów niektórych zaglądali, to tam był żar. W piwnicach był żar po węglu, po tym wszystkim to był żar. Gorąco było niesamowicie. Duże ludzie, jak się ich budynki podpalali od spodu, od dołu, od, od parter, to spięte starali się tam otwierać okna, wyskakiwać. Niemcy szczelali właśnie do nich. No jak, jak dzieci, powiedzieliśmy tak, no, no to, to trudno opisać, ja bym trudno opisać, bo, bo tych wszyscy tych Żydów wprowadzili tam, gdzie kogo przyłapali na drodze, wprowadzili ich tam do tej różnicy. I tam zamknęli i i podwalili tam tą różnicę, no więc tam było okropne rzeczy, krzyki i wiadomo, co się tam działo. No, trochę się tam wyrwało ludzi, tam uciekali, no to strzelali. To strzelali i potem jak się już skończyło, to potem na drugi dzień. To trupów leżało w masze, nie można było mało, mało no, masze, no masze leżało tu, nie można było przejść, trudno było nawet przejść gdziekolwiek. Na rowerze pojechałem na cmentarz żydowski, który do dzisiejszego dnia istnieje, jak jedziemy do Czeradzi, po lewej stronie, ten cmentarz to tam w tym budynku, na podłodze to byli układani. 
właśnie tu opisuje starzy, młodzi, mężczyźni, kobiety. To takie wrażenie na mnie, bo wtedy ja miałem 14 lat wtedy, wiesz, usta pootwierane, w oczach papa poprzykleniane, takie coś, żółci byli. Ci ludzie byli żółci od tego dymu czy od czegoś. I ja tak się napatrzyłem na tych ludzi, że jakoś zaczęło się ściemniać. To ja tym rowerem z tej górki, to przyznaję się wam, jechałem tak, jakby mi włosy dęba stanęły ze strachu, jakby mnie coś goniło. No. Early acts of violence, such as the burning of Jews in the synagogue and surrounding houses, soon gave way to a more enduring period of what might be called systemic violence. Eastern Upper Silesia was annexed and incorporated into the expanded Greater German Reich. The county and town of Benjamin were taken under civilian administration. My father uh, was the son of a Landrat. Landrat is the head of the district administration and wanted to be a Landrat also. This was his uh, professional dream. Many members perhaps thought, well, there was the SS and on the other hand, the normal administration and they were quite apart. But this was not possible because the superior of all the Regierungspräsidenten and of the Landräte and so on, uh, was a man uh, who resided in the Ministry of the Interior and his name was Reinhard Heydrich. And he sent many of his circulars around what should happen to the Jews, how their rations should be cut um, uh, how they should be, uh, uh, how sh they should be concentrated in ghettos and so on and so forth. And the administration, of course, couldn't have executed that. Under German civilian administration, Jews were forced out of their houses and moved into a ghetto area. They were subjected to forced labour duties, and some were deported to slave labour camps. Living on reduced rations, wearing the Star of David, Jews endured a regime of terror. Conventionally, we think of Nazi perpetrators as those involved in direct physical violence. The SS, the Gestapo, the killing squads, and the concentration camp personnel. Less well explored, however, are the roles of civilian administrators. But they implemented a deeply racist system, laying the groundwork in terms of ghettoization, stigmatization, loss of liberty, humiliation, and degradation, which later made it easier for the frontline killers to do their work, rounding up and deporting the Jews. It was often only at this stage, and sometimes even later or not at all, that civilian functionaries realized where their actions had led. Once we asked him well, what, what happened there when, when after all we were born, um, and he told us uh, about it, but uh, not, not so many details. It struck us, my sister and myself, uh, that my father felt quite uncomfortable in this place, you know. He uh, didn't like the memories. Uh, of course, we didn't know much about those memories at that time. Uh, but we both remembered uh, that he felt uncomfortable and that he felt like leaving as soon as possible. 
dneska babča. I akurát vracám s povrotem, jak musím to zničit. Na kimś wykonują egzekucję, zatrzymywali tych ludzi, coraz więcej nas się zbierało i dopiero robili specjalnie, tak, tak, tak wykonywali egzekucję. Tutaj dwójka jest powieszony Żydów na zawale, właśnie na najstarszym kierkowie. Tu był najstarszy. A, a akurat tą egzekucję? Tak, na drzewie wieszali. So what was it you actually witnessed in Benjamin the 19th of the last year? Well, it was on the one hand the uh, general conditions, life conditions of Poles, especially Jews, and then deportation. He saw the first uh, large-scale uh, deportation of Jews in August uh, 1942. I saw how a soldier tore a baby who was only a few months old out of a mother's hands and bashed his head against an electric pylon. The baby's brain splashed on the wood. The mother went crazy. I am writing this as if nothing has happened. But I'm young, I'm 14, and I haven't seen much in my life, and I'm already so indifferent. Now I am terrified when I see uniforms. I'm turning into an animal waiting to die. One can lose one's mind thinking about this. Rutger Laskier, diary entry, written in February 1943 in the ghetto, recollecting her experiences of the previous summer. One of 23,000 Jews gathered on a former sports ground, now the Benjamin bus terminus, Rutger Laskier faced the selections of August 1942. Over the course of several days, 4,700 Benjamin Jews were selected for death and sent down the railway tracks to the gas chambers of Auschwitz. Thousands of others were selected for slave labor, either in the locality or in camps run by the SS. Those waiting for the trains were held here in a former Jewish orphanage, conveniently situated right next to the railway tracks. They were loaded onto trucks and cattle wagons here at the Benjamin railway station. One of the few Benjamin survivors, Doris Martin, recalls, for the next several days, Benjamin was a city of tears. Mostly people just stayed in their homes, mourning and praying. If God existed, he would have certainly not permitted that human beings be thrown alive into furnaces and the heads of little toddlers be smashed with the butt of guns, or be shoved into sacks and gassed to death. I am sick and tired of these grey houses, of the steady fear seen in everybody's faces. 
This fear clutches onto everyone and doesn't let go. Rutger Laskier did not survive the final clearance of the ghetto in the summer of 1943. She died in Auschwitz just a few months after writing these words. We traditionally think of Nazi perpetrators as the frontline killers, those who pulled the trigger. But civilian functionaries also played a role in creating the preconditions for genocide. The ways in which they represented their actions to themselves and to others at the time and later are highly complex. Does he show you where he lived? Yes, uh, he showed, showed us the house where we live, the, um, uh, the official house that he that inhabited, which was uh, the house of a former Jewish factory owner who had fled. This wealthy factory owner, the Schein family, had also endowed the Jewish orphanage, taken over by the Nazis as a dulag or transit camp. He also showed us uh, where his former office was. Yes, uh, there wasn't much to see there. It was a uh, very uh, drab place, and I think still is. The whole area there on the this, uh, eastern part of Upper Silesia, including my own birthplace, Gleibitz. I mean, this is not exactly uh, what, what you would choose for your holidays. Klauser was clearly uncomfortable about his role, suffering from nerves throughout 1942. He finally left for the front in December 1942, feeling that in this way he could avoid, as he put it, innocently becoming guilty. But it was already too late. The municipal authorities had become deeply implicated effectively incarcerating the Jews in the ghetto and making it easier for the SS and Gestapo to carry out the final ghetto clearance, even in face of fierce resistance on the part of the Jews, in an uprising lasting two weeks in the summer of 1943. In his view and in the view of many Germans, there was the uh, opportunity of the grey immigration, and that was the army, the Wehrmacht, which for a long time was comparatively independent, and later on it was, of course, no longer independent, but still people thought there they could do what every normal Britain or American did, serve their country in the army. My father, of course, realized uh, much later that only as long as the army stood uh, could the furnaces of Auschwitz operate, so that this was a certain an error. But this was what he and many others, other conservatives thought at that time. Auschwitz has come to epitomise the evil of genocide. More people were killed here than in any other single site of extermination. Yet this was only a tiny fraction of the total. Far more people were murdered across Europe, in fields and villages, in towns and cities, than in all the dedicated centres of extermination. And people also died from the effects of brutality, malnutrition and disease in the overcrowded ghettos and labour camps run by the Nazis. <coughs> My father would tell me about uh, some terrible experiences uh, that he had in a variety of, uh, of camps during the Second World War. Uh, but uh, sometimes only in the middle of the night when 
he would have a nightmare, and uh, I would hear, um, I would hear it. Did uh, I realize that probably the most uh, horrific uh, parts of, uh, of what he had experienced is something that he he didn't share with me. Growing up the way in, in the atmosphere that I did, of course, the Holocaust was omnipresent. I was not one of those children who did not hear about it from their parents. Quite to the contrary, my parents talked, my father especially, but my mother as well, talked about it uh, all the time. Oh yes, they talked a lot. I mean, many people of my generation uh, say that their parents never talked about the Third Reich. My parents did uh, so a great deal, especially my father always tried to understand how was it possible that everything went so wrong and what could he, he have done differently. Even in families where there was a great deal of candor about those experiences, there were certain things that for a very understandable uh, emotional reasons uh, parents didn't share with their children, or at least uh, not directly. He even uh, succeeded in saving for the time being his own janitor, who was Jewish, and his family. He took, uh, put on his uh, army uniform and went to the place where all these people were interned and said, I need these people for my, uh, uh, for my work, and they released them. Um, but uh, after one week, he, these uh, Jews were hidden in his uh, basement. Um, he, they, uh, they had to leave, and he doesn't know what happened to them. Probably they were also caught by the SS later on. He had an uh, impression what Auschwitz was really about only in 1944, when he met a schoolmate, former schoolmate in, uh, in a train, and he was wearing an SS uniform. He asked him, now why are you working? He said, in Auschwitz. He said, what are you doing there? He said, oh, don't ask me, it's horrible. And then he had a, a, a foreboding what, what happened there. Of course, many other Germans knew much more, not necessarily about Auschwitz, uh, because these, um, these death camps were really kept secret very well. Oh, yeah. They talk a lot. He's got, he's got. Yeah, everything was the worst. Yes, the worst. They were discussing, they were saying things. So, Okay, so everybody knew about Auschwitz. Yeah. Were people very scared? There is, of course, a clear difference between the perpetrators from the Gestapo, the SS, and the police forces, the men who shot and killed, and the grey-suited civilian administrators in their offices. 
But this does not mean that these civilian functionaries should be overlooked. Whatever their inner qualms and doubts, they faithfully implemented Nazi policies. Everyday racism meant that they were able to ignore the suffering and anguish of the Jews they had forced into ghettos, maltreated and starved. And in systematically degrading and constraining the Jews, in destroying their physical and psychological capacity for resistance or escape, Hitler's facilitators also, whether willingly or unwillingly, ultimately helped pave the way for genocide. After the war, with a focus on so much physical brutality and murder, these civil servants were frequently able to integrate seamlessly into new post-war regimes, telling stories about their past, which rendered it harmless, even respectable. by the actions of so many, yet actually intended by so few, and how some people could later claim that they had always been against it, with varying degrees of honesty, while their behaviour at the time had in fact propelled the dynamism of Nazism onto the murderous conclusion that was Auschwitz and all that this stands for.